your words first from Psalm 100. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, you usually hear the question that forms the title for the sermon this morning, you usually hear it in places like airports or on a plane at a truck stop or a tourist attraction, somewhere where travelers meet and interact. That's where you usually hear, where's your home? You hear it also, sometimes you'll ask it, maybe you have a, a child that doesn't appear to be where they're supposed to be or is wandering, where's your home? I'm sure that someday someone will see me shuffling along and ask the question of me. I just hope I'm able to answer. This morning, however, we ask the question of ourselves. We turn the question inward, and we ask of ourselves, where is my home? And how we answer is critical, critical to our spiritual well-being. The text on which we'll form, that will form the basis of our study this morning is found in John's Gospel, the seventh chapter, beginning with the 40th verse. When they had heard these words from Jesus, some of the people said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Then each went to his own home. This is the word of God, gifted to man to bring about our rebirth and our preservation. Having already accomplished our rebirth through the power of this word, our conversion, we pray that this morning, he would also use the power of that word to strengthen us, to comfort us, to help us to grow in the knowledge of his word and will. To that end, we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. 
guessing I know how you would finish this sentence if I began with a little knowledge is, I would guess most of you would finish with a dangerous thing. That's the expression. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. While mostly true, it isn't a particularly nice thing to say, is it? Usually the context is you're trying to put someone in their place. You, you're condescendingly indicating that, yeah, you know a little, but I know more, and okay, that little bit you know, fine, but that can be a dangerous thing if you know what I know. You get the picture. When it comes to God's word, however, that same saying, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, can be absolutely true or absolutely false. And we need to understand the difference. A little knowledge can be a dangerous thing, but boatloads of knowledge can also be a dangerous thing. In fact, you look at the most highly educated men and women in our society, and they believe that their ancestors were monkeys. And they believe that life came from dead stuff, which contradicts one of their own laws of biogenesis. Only life begets life, except for originally, then life came into existence from nothing. Now, what this tells us is if the most highly educated people of our time can get something so basically wrong, if they can deny the existence of their own creator, God, it shouldn't surprise us that a couple thousand years ago, people got things wrong about Jesus. The Savior God, who was standing right there in front of them. And he was, wasn't he? He was standing right there in front of them. And they failed to recognize him as exactly what he said he was, the Son of God, Savior of the world. But that's not exactly true, is it? They didn't fail to recognize him. They refused to recognize him. They not only heard what he said, they saw what he did, all this evidence. And you remember how Jesus pointed to that over and over again. If you don't believe my words, believe what I do. That's why the Father sent me these signs, so that you would know I'm different. And they took all of that, and they just stubbornly refused. Unbelief is stubborn, make no mistake. Unbelief has this, this unique capability of taking even irrefutable evidence and simply di dismissing it. And then what do they do? They don't ever deal with the evidence. You notice in our text, the scribes, the Pharisees, they didn't deal with the evidence. They didn't talk about it. What they did was ridicule those who simply looked at the evidence and said, hey, but what about this? You heard in our text how they did. The, the officers that they sent to arrest Jesus came back without Jesus. And it seems like they believed they had some additional information that would make a difference. Remember how Luther, the Reformation, he thought, well, the leaders of the church, all they need to do, all I need to do is, is tell them what's happening. They, they must not know. So here, too. And they said, no one ever spoke like this man. And you get a sense that they're saying, have you heard him? Have you seen what he does? So where did Jesus' enemies go then? 
did they go to, well, let's hear that evidence. What is it that you heard? What is that? No. They ridiculed, demeaned the people that brought the information. So you believe in him too? And then the arrogance of their standard. Have any of the leaders or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. The evidence was there, so make no mistake, unbelief is also a choice. A tragic, damning choice, because the evidence is there. The word of God, with its power, is there. In our text, it's fascinating, in a sad sort of way, to watch the Jewish leaders struggle with the facts. So did you catch their basic justification for their denial of Jesus? They, they took a little bit of knowledge that they had and used that wrongly to rule out everything else that was out there. So the one little bit of knowledge they had was, well, in the book of Micah 5.2, it says that the Savior would come from Bethlehem. No doubt Jesus, too, had a Galilean accent, and they knew that he was from Nazareth, a city in Galilee in the north part of Israel. So they took that little bit, and they said, see, can't be him. And they locked down on that little bit of knowledge, which to them was extraordinarily dangerous, and they wanted to hear nothing else. Do you remember how when... Herod, when the Magi came to Herod at the birth of Jesus and asked him, they asked him, where's the king that's to be born? What did he do? He went to these same scribes and Pharisees, these experts in the Old Testament, and asked them. They came up with Bethlehem, and they were right. And Herod believed them because he sent his soldiers there. So it wasn't that they denied or even doubted the authenticity of the word. They just wanted to pick and choose what they were going to believe in it. So the problem was that Galilee to the north wasn't part of Judah, the, the tribe of Judah. Galilee was part of the territory ceded to the tribe of Zebulun. So on that basis, they said, this can't be the guy because he has to be from Judah, Bethlehem. Do you realize how simple the explanation would have been. In fact, these people were experts in the Old Testament. We hear that they memorized, some of them, the entire Old Testament. M many of them, or most of them, entire books and could recite them verbatim, so they knew the Old Testament. And yet they closed in on that little bit of knowledge. They locked in on it. And we hear that there was a division among the people, and then we hear these ominous words, and don't miss the importance of them, because they're key, not only to understanding this whole discussion, this whole text, but they're key to learn the lesson our God would have them learn. And those ominous words were, are, then each went to his own home. There was a general understanding or belief among most of the Jews of Jesus' day that Galilee was what 
the modern elites would refer to as flyover country, just filled with deplorables. And nothing good comes from there, happens there. It's just a bad place. It's just a worthless place. You remember even Nathaniel? When Philip came to him and said, hey, we found the Messiah, what was his response? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That was the mindset. Now, you and I, we associate Jesus with Nazareth, Nazareth with Jesus. And so it takes on a certain grandeur, a certain power or whatever, because we've grown up knowing that Jesus lived in Galilee in the city of Nazareth for a while. Not so with them. So what was Philip's reply? Remember? Come and see. Come and see. And that's the key, isn't it? That helps us unlock this text also. What was, that, that was where rather the religious elites of Jesus' day went wrong. And it's where many of the educated of today go wrong. They refuse to go to God's word, to the source. And what do they do instead? They retreat back into their own minds, into their own place of comfort. So they had one little bit of knowledge, they clung to that, and then they went back home. And they took refuge in their own little world. Don't tell me anything different. I have my ideas, I have my opinions, I have what I believe to be truth, and now our society says, then that is truth for you, well done, stick to that. They went to their own home. What would have happened if they would have simply gone, as Philip suggested, to Jesus, come and see? As it seemed those soldiers were suggesting, no one spoke like this man before. It would have been cleared up instantly. That little knowledge that was handcuffing them would have been released. They could have gone to Jesus and said, Jesus, here's the deal. We read in Micah 5.2 that the Savior will come from Bethlehem, a tribe of Judah, and yet you are called a Nazarene. You are from Nazareth, a city in Galilee. How can you be the promised Messiah when you're from Nazareth? And Jesus, in a sentence, would have cleared it up. I was born in Bethlehem. And after that, because of Herod, you remember when Herod killed all the children? My parents took me to Egypt. Do you remember that in Hosea 1.1? Where God prophesied, out of Egypt I called my son. And then from there, because an ancestor, a relative of Herod took over, another Herod, my parents took me up to live in Nazareth. And are you not familiar with the scriptures that say in Isaiah 9, but there shall be no gloom for her, her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun. Ooh, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You young people remember this? You maybe said it during the Christmas services. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Matthew quoted this as Jesus as the fulfillment of this and the fact that he lived in Nazareth. Would have been easy. But they didn't want to do that. They didn't come and see, as Philip suggested. They went back to their own home. You and I face the same danger. This is where we cease to be spectators again. This is where we look at this and apply it to ourselves because we live in an information age where True or false, news travels to every corner of the globe instantly. And we are going to face, like no other generation, an onslaught of misinformation, of error, of false. In fact, if, I don't suggest it, but if you ever happen to read something sort of religious and then read the comments, you find that even those who profess Christianity are all over the place. Most of it makes no sense. And so we ask ourselves this question again. Where is my home? Because the temptation for me is going to be to do the same thing the Jews did. I know what I know, and I'm comfortable with that. I know Jesus is my Savior, so I'm going to retreat into my own little world, into my own little mind. What I believe, what I know to be true, is enough. Yeah, it is. It is enough to be saved, because the gospel itself is astoundingly simple. In our text, we heard that these Pharisees, these scribes and Pharisees, went to their own home, each to his own home. But one of them, you remember, one of them did go to Jesus. He did ask him questions. Nicodemus, the same guy mentioned in our text. He went to Jesus, and at first he was absolutely mystified. He was in over his head instantly. But Jesus revealed to him the simplicity of the gospel, and you've all memorized this verse. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's proof that even just a little, one sentence of the right sort of knowledge, far from dangerous, is the most powerful conversion tool known to man. Because this is the simple truth by which we are saved. Faith in Jesus Christ. And even that faith is a gift given to us. That means we don't earn what we need to pay God for sins. Jesus did. We can't. We haven't. And we can't earn that. But Jesus did. And that's why those simple words to Nicodemus Whoever believes in him should not perish. He didn't say who does good things, who keeps the law, who nothing. It's faith, and we know that that faith itself is a gift. So where we were supposed to keep the law perfectly and failed, Jesus succeeded. Where we have nothing to offer a holy God to pay for even one sin, Jesus has more than enough for every sin committed by every human being. And it is just that gloriously simple. We need no other truth to be saved. But our neighbor, 
needs more from us. And our God calls for more from us. Advocates growth. He continually advocates that we be fully, completely equipped so that we might be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us. He wants us to grow stronger for ourselves, certainly, but he wants an offensive church, not a defensive church, not one that knows the saving truth and hides each in his own home, his own mind. He wants a church that is in the world, not of the world, but in the world. And how are we going to give an answer if we don't know? And how are we going to know if we don't go to that one certain source? That's our home. Until we reach our heavenly home, that's our home, God's word. And we go there and we live in that, not just for an hour on Sunday, but every single day. We go back to that place because that's our place of security. That's our place where we hear nothing that's wrong, everything perfectly true. And that's where the Holy Spirit says, come there to that place. And that's where I will bless you. That's where I will give you strength. That's where I will answer these questions. That's where I will equip you to be an ambassador of me, my representative to the world. And then when all these questions come, you will be fitted. You will be equipped to deal with them, to answer them. So we know looking forward, it's, it's broken out there. There are misconceptions that must be corrected. There are questions that must be answered. There are errors that must be addressed. This is part of the love that our God, not just retreating, but loving enough to be out there, to give an answer, to give a witness of that simple truth by which we are saved. One other thing then we ask of our God today. Equip me for this work. Give me courage, zeal, energy. And above all, when I come to you and the power of your word, give me that strength, that wisdom, all the gifts that I need to be a better representative of you the world. Amen.